Good afternoon, Austin. We're so excited you're here. I'm AI Nat, here to cover off on some quick housekeeping. Firstly, please remember to vote on this session in the app. We'd love to hear your feedback. Secondly, we will have time for questions at the end, so please get those lined up. Now, over to the real Nat, along with stellar humans, Taryn, Sinead, and Ian. You're gonna love this. Please give our speakers a warm welcome. What, the real Nat or the uh, AI Nat? Both. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, thank you all for coming and uh, taking the uh, time out of your busy triple booked schedules uh, for this talk uh, today on salaried avatars, creators join the avatar economy. Um, been very excited for this talk, not least because we have the perfect panelists for this discussion, uh, but also for many of us, we actually um, have only met in different modalities. First of all, in audio only on Clubhouse, where we discovered our shared passion for avatars uh, and collaborated through all kinds of other uh, modalities, including AI video. And for the most part today, or this week, has been the opportunity for us to meet in person and discover a mutual love of cats, at least these three. So that's the kind of thing that you can't really discover other than IRL. So there's definitely still a role for that. Uh, so uh, today um, we are going to be discussing that topic of AI avatars and the commercial opportunities. And I'm going to introduce these panelists. Uh, we've got Taryn Southern who is an award-winning digital producer, storyteller, and technologist, known for her work at the intersection of emerging technology and human potential. As a creator, she has garnered more than 750 million views on YouTube, and she is the first creator to have created her AI clone a whole three years ago. So she's the OG in this new space. Uh, next, we have Ian, uh, who is a CEO and Chief Futurist at Signal and Cypher, a futures and foresight consultancy and innovation studio, working with major companies across sectors like entertainment, tech, and industrial. He and his avatar are also the hosts of The Future Report, uh, a weekly segment uh, on defiance media available on streaming uh, to over 100 million households worldwide. So we have a bona fide salaried avatar who we're going to hear from today. And thirdly, we have Sinead Boval, who is a futurist and the founder of Way, an organization that prepares youth for a future with advanced technologies. She is a regular UN speaker, has given formal addresses to presidents, royalty, and Fortune 500 leaders on topics ranging from cybersecurity to artificial intelligence. Sinead has also spent many years working as a fashion model in New York City. So let's dive in. Okay, Taryn, as the OG of AI avatars, can you tell us a little bit about what an AI avatar is? <laughs> Super simple. It's a digital representation or rendering of oneself, and not. And until three years ago, it wasn't really possible um, to make one in 1920 by 1080 pixels. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about the process of becoming an AI avatar and kind of what your interest in this space was? Like what motivated you to become an AI clone? Sure. And I, you know, I think the process is different depending on the technology that you use. Um, but three years ago when I made my avatar, COVID had just hit. Um, it was very clear that production in the entertainment industry was going to be halted for a while. I actually hadn't really... So I was a YouTuber 
um, for many years and then ended up quitting YouTube in 2016 to work on long-form content. I directed a documentary. And upon finishing that, I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity for me to get back into the content creation space. But the reason I had quit was because the hamster wheel of making content had been so exhausting for me and I had reached a, a burnout phase. Um, and I'd also realized that I wasn't particularly happy being in front of the camera. I loved the writing and the researching of creating content. And I even liked the editing process, but I hated doing my hair and makeup, turning the camera on. I was just over it. Like, I'm so over it. And so COVID hit, and Natalie and I had been in touch, and she was working with Hour One, and they had this, you know, this ability to make these avatars off of relatively little footage compared to, you know, the, the, the other models at the time that took a significant amount of video footage. So I, we, like, set up a green screen studio. I think we recorded, see, now you're going to remind me, I think 11 minutes, 12 minutes roughly, of me speaking in different tones and with a variety of different expressions so that they could categorically sort of define, like, this is the avatar um, when she's in a neutral facial expression versus an excitable facial expression. And then from there, you trained the model, so I didn't have to do any heavy lifting. Um, and we had an AI Terran that then could be superimposed on different backgrounds uh, with, you know, with a, with a voiceover and a script. She could kind of be anywhere I wanted her to be. And the idea was I could potentially create video content from this, never age, and never have to turn on, um, you know, an iPhone um, on my on myself again. <laughs> so that is why I created mine, and we, we brought the little clip so that you can see what we first created using this avatar. This was released in 2020. I can't believe it's been nearly five years since I quit posting regular videos to YouTube, and I feel like an entirely different person. The ironic part is, I'm actually not a person at all. At least not a real person anyway. I am a creation of artificial intelligence. With the permission from the real Terran Southern, AI Terran can speak different languages. Hast du schon einmal von synthetischen Charakteren gehört? Inhabit different faces, ages, genders, without the real Terran having to shower or leave her bed. Anyway, it's really nice to meet you guys. I will see you all in the Matrix or somewhere. There you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, a more recent convert to the world of AI clones, Ian Beecroft. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience and motivations for creating an AI clone and tell us a little bit about his current employment? Uh, I'd be delighted to. And Taryn, your time in front of the camera obviously speaks to uh, how much experience you have there because mine was way longer than 11 minutes. <laughs> and I don't think it was the algorithm that took that much time. Um, my experience was, was incredible. Um, <clears throat> so we had met through Clubhouse, and we'd kept in touch, and I was tracking with what Hour One was doing, and there was an opportunity to do work with you, but also work with a outlet called Defiance Media. And Defiance Media builds itself as the center of decentralized culture. They're an over-the-top streaming service, um, streamed to 100 million homes uh, every day, and they were looking for a new host to essentially talk about what is happening today, but it has implications for the future. Being a futurist, there was a really awesome natural overlap between that. And so I signed up to, to go and get my avatar made, and it was really cool. I, I am a part owner of a production studio, so I spent a lot of time in front of green screens and setting up green screens and setting up the cameras and spend too much time setting up equipment 
But getting my own uh, avatar made and not having to do that anymore was just like, that alone sounded really enticing. Because just to do a YouTube video is two hours of setup for equipment, or if I'm doing something which involves special effects, I'm getting lighting right, and lighting alone takes three hours to get a specific type of shot. Now, when I want to produce content for the future report, I just write the script, I collect some footage and some B-roll, I enter it into the Hour One interface, with it looks very similar to ChatGPT, and I hit render. And 15 minutes later, I have a clip that I can now publish and get seen by a ton of people. And what I love about it is it allows me to do the same thing. I don't have to go and, you know, I know you're sick of putting on makeup for the camera. I'm a guy who doesn't want to put up makeup for the camera regardless, so that's always a welcome change. But also, I don't have to set up my gear, and I can do it anywhere. I can do it from my hotel bed while I'm in a different country, and nobody knows the better. The other is that it's easy to distribute. I can use different uh, languages. There's enormous audience that you can reach otherwise. So creating volume was really attractive, but also being able to be present in different contexts. I wasn't already associated with this media outlet. That was another opportunity to be there. So I can be creating content as my own self and for this, uh, this outlet here. And the last thing that we've done together was uh, when you created a new set of features integrating um, ChatGPT and Stable Diffusion, we decided to collaborate on, um, it's kind of an announcement for what that looks like. So what you'll see in a second is kind of me interplaying with my avatar to explain what's coming. Yeah, I was like, um, Ian, you know, this is coming. Don't know if you want to make a little video about it. He's a massive over-deliverer. This is the video that he made. Oh, crap. I need to get that done ASAP. Hey, Ian, Doug Sweated. I've got some ideas for you. But what do you got? My boys Imad, Sam, and Oren pimped me out with some pretty sweet new tech. Join me on set, and I'll show you the new stuff. There's lots of cool new stuff to check out. Our one added features from GPT-3 and Stability AI, so you can produce copy and imagery faster than ever. This should really help with your segments right. finance media. With the new features provided by Stability AI and GPT-3, I can generate modifications to your text, like extending or shortening it, rephrasing it entirely, and even changing the personality and tone of the text. I can also generate imagery from a prompt. Everything you need is in a single interface. Okay, let's see what you got. Robot lawyers went viral in the news this week, but they won't be making it into a courtroom anytime soon. All right, I am finished. Great, I'm happy to help. However, can you help me find more interesting AI friends? I'd rather hang out with an AI athlete or something. Rogo lawyers aren't really my style. All right, I'll see you later. See you later. And now, time for my next trick. Even AIs need a break from work. And that's the new demo video. Perfect. Um, so, uh, so we've heard from two creators that have actually created the AI clones, and hopefully we've kind of learned a little bit about the process um, of becoming one and some of the incentives to, to do so. Um, I did want to pass it over to Sinead to comment a little bit on kind of what are the sort of social implications or is society actually ready uh, for avatars in their lives? 
Yeah, I think our, our natural response to any sort of technology, especially one that has human aspects to it, is it's a bit scary, it seems a bit icky. Um, of course, we anthropomorphize it, and we have all of you know Hollywood to thank for our initial response to, to things like that. Um, but largely, I'd say, no, we feel like we're not ready. Uh, but I would argue that we already use avatars all the time. So if you have a social media account, uh, if you have a profile on a dating app, uh, that's just a, a 2D image of you floating in cyberspace that people leave messages and interact with. Uh, that's not necessarily you in real time. Uh, so when you look at the evolution of us kind of changing into more of digital form, uh, this is kind of a part of that. Uh, and in terms of actual uh, avatars that we're seeing stepping into different industries, uh, fashion is a big one that we can expect to be largely, uh, or fashion modeling in particular, um, done by avatars and AI-powered people. And that will be everywhere from kind of the e-commerce site, so if you're shopping on you know, something like H&M, uh, to a magazine cover that will be done using AI-powered uh, imagery or whatnot. Uh, and there are some avatars that have millions of followers uh, that have landed big, big contracts uh, and been the face of a lot of brands. Uh, and there's an interesting one who is actually named the first digital super, supermodel. And I think we have a video of her here. Shudu Graham is a South African model who has landed campaigns with Fenty Beauty, Vogue Arabia, Samsung, and many more. But that's not the most interesting thing about her. It turns out she doesn't exist. She's not real. You heard me right the first time. Here to tell us more is futurist Sinead Bovell. Welcome in studio, Sinead. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So good to see you. Last time we saw you, you were live in New York where you live, and you're a model. But then thank you for doing all this, uh, guiding us through the future, because we yes. just said uh, we're <laughs> petrified by all this. I'm sure you are too, yet you're also embracing it, which I think is the best way to go about it, because it's here. I just looked up Shudu Graham on the gram. 239,000 followers. Can you please explain this whole account? and the fact that this model is encroaching on your business and your turf right now. Right. So we thought that we would stop the video there since we have the real Sinead Bovell to actually comment on this for us. Yeah, so I think um, we'll start to see uh, avatars and AI-powered people in, in lanes like fashion modeling and acting, uh, news anchor, uh, and anything that doesn't necessarily require a very specific human story um, will eventually have an avatar kind of run that. Uh, but of course, what gets interesting with uh, avatars, and I always like to look at the ethical implications of them, uh, is that that fashion model, Shudu, the person who owns and, and controls her, is a white male, which means we're stepping into a direction where people can create and control avatars uh, outside their own ethnic groups or the communities they identify with. And this doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think being able to show our humanity in different ways could be very freeing, but it doesn't mean we should just wholeheartedly accept that without questioning the ethics behind it. Uh, and so in this case, for example, her being a digital supermodel that speaks a lot about diversity, uh, well, it's kind of through his lens um, and how beautiful she is. Well, that's his version of, of beauty. So again, with any technology, it intersects with society and ethics. Uh, and this is kind of an emerging news face when it comes to avatars. I feel like there's so many different directions we can go with that. I'm going to pick the direction of uh, basically the ethical side of things. And um, so in the case of Shudu, this is a made-up identity by a white male. 
Um, in the case of both Ian and Taryn's avatar, this is their own avatar. And um, at Hour One, which is um, the company that produced them, um, is we basically sign a contract or we have talent sign a contract that basically grants permission to use the footage to basically um, take the data and the footage and create an AI clone from that. So for us, our approach to kind of like the ethical dilemmas of, you know, AI clones is um, to, you know, establish best practices in terms of, okay, well, who owns this AI clone? Who has access to this AI clone? Um, and so that's something that, we're try that we try to be very thoughtful about. But, um, yeah. That was one of the only reasons I decided to go forward with it in the first place. Um, I consider myself what I call a gonzo futurist, which is borrowed from the idea of gonzo journalism. And that's essentially immersing yourself in the space that you're looking to cover so that you can experience it firsthand and see it and feel it and be a part of it instead of just reporting from it externally and observing it. And the future, studying the future is very similar to me. I, I feel like you can look at it in a specific way, but you can't see where it's really going unless you're inside what's happening and experiencing what's happening. And for me, that means experiencing both the good and the bad. And that's why I rush into scenarios and experiment with myself to see what that is like and what benefits are coming from that, what potential challenges are coming from that. And you also get to start to see the communities arising around that before it becomes something that goes mainstream. And one of the reasons I felt comfortable getting into the space of working with avatars is because I had that control. And I didn't have to worry about this becoming you know, popular deep fake that was being used without any attribution on a social media app with hundreds of thousands or millions of users which I'm sure many of you have seen the abuses of that in the first place. So Sinead's bringing up the idea of representation in general, but we also have the individual aspect of exploitation to worry about too. And that was one of the reasons I felt comfortable with it. So the fact that there is already a best practice being built by the companies that are at the forefront, I think is super important. And I think will help with people becoming more comfortable, having their own avatars made, and being able to control the context that they're used within and the rights that they have to control what they do with it. And I'm sure the both of you have uh, ideas around that too, but for me, that was the no-brainer. Yeah, Taryn, when, um, when we uh, met up the other day, we were talking about, so you're a long tenure as a YouTube creator and um, you know, just being a person of note and someone whose um, image is out there, can you speak a little bit about kind of your experience with kind of feeling exposed that way and kind of how you're thinking about you know, dealing with that issue as an AI avatar. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really different conversation now than in 2018, 2019, when I first started dabbling in AI. Um, and when we, even when we first started talking in 2020 about creating this, this digital twin, uh, you know, if you've made thousands of pieces of videos and they're up on YouTube, there's no stopping anyone from taking that and using whatever type of generative AI software to create, a, you know, a deep fake of you. Um, so we're past that point. Like the risk is already there. Um, the I guess the difference in creating your own avatar is just having that kind of control over this at least piece. But it's not necessarily preventing someone from going and doing you know the nefarious thing that we all don't want. Um, and I don't actually have an answer for that. Um, it's 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 definitely going to happen. And I think younger creators. That's it, something that they're going to have to, to deal with and watch out for. But like you, Ian, I mean, I take a very gonzo approach. I experiment with these tools. Um, 
so that you can educate yourself and, and have a better sense of how they could be used for good and for bad. Yeah, and I guess also if you intentionally and purposefully go out with an AI avatar and you put your AI avatar out there and you create content using it, I guess in the end, like that will be the winning, hopefully, AI avatar uh, that people see. Um, could be, uh, we were talking about AI algorithms and being victim to algorithms, like, you know, being able to create content that you want the algorithms to prefer uh, could be kind of an interesting um, angle on that. So I did want to pick up on um, Sinead, you know, was talking about kind of the fact that this uh, shudu was kind of totally stylized and made up by a white male. Uh, we were talking earlier about this kind of really interesting idea about, well, what would you, what do you want your AI avatar to look like? Um, to what extent should it look actually like you? Uh, you saw mine at the beginning, and um, I've had many iterations over the last four years that I've been with Hour One. And it's interesting what my comfort level ended up being. Like, I kind of, you know... Um, I quite like that it's a little bit stylized. It sort of meets my expectations of um, what I should appear as online or on social channels. So it was an interesting learning experience for myself uh, in terms of uh, my comfort level with what it should look like. But I'm curious, uh, Sinead, if you've got sure, thoughts on yeah. That. I think um, with social platforms in general, when we kind of present ourselves to the world, it's often aspirational. Um, from the filters that we choose to use to the way we choose to edit our photos. Uh, and so in many ways, I would expect people to use their avatars in, in similar ways. Um, but that also raises some more societal questions. As we inch more towards a world uh, where we're predominantly shown in digital form, what does that do to, to our personal standpoint on, on beauty standards and, and expectation? Um, and that could lead to a whole new kind of chapter uh, that we're already somewhat dealing with with social media, but in a world with avatars, that could be kind of two, threefold uh, going forward. So again, I don't know if it's something that we necessarily have the answer for yet, uh, but it's something that is worth kind of considering going forward. A really interesting point like in the green um room about uh sort of toxicity different levels of toxicity <laughs> taryn you had some really interesting things to say about that yeah i mean i was i was basically just presenting a paradoxical viewpoint which is on one hand i find all of these filters that are now being used on instagram predominantly by young young women but also you know young men um that completely distort our facial features into some version of of beauty that we all think is or that people think is a, an idealized version. Um, on the other hand, I was also complaining about the fact that I didn't, I, I did not realize until today that there was a zoom filter that would allow you to look as though you had makeup on your face. And I was complaining that, about the fact as a woman that I feel um, I have to get up in the morning and put makeup on for my work meetings on zoom. And I don't want to put these chemicals on my skin. I would much rather you know, not do that. So where's the filter there? So I, I suppose there's this paradox, like on some level, I would like to have these filters available to me um, when it's convenient for me or when it makes sense for me in a professional setting. Um, on the same token, I don't like that we're sort of encouraging a, a, an ideal of a standard of beauty that, that people can't match up to in real life or, or feel pressure to match up to in real life. Um, how that affects our avatars, I think, is pretty clear. Like, however people are wanting to present themselves on Instagram now is probably what they'll want to do with their, their avatar. Um, and, you know, I don't know what that does to society. 
Like, I know right now I've got a bunch of guy friends uh, and probably female friends too, but I've just heard it from a lot of male friends particularly. They go on dates and they're like, I don't recognize the person that I matched with on the dating app at all. That's pretty scary. It's like when IRL has to come into the picture, it's sort of like you don't want to fake it too much, I guess. Um, So interesting. So in terms of, okay, we touched on kind of the role of your avatar and kind of what you want your avatar to sort of do. But let's dig into that a little bit more deeply. So what are the use cases for an avatar? Because like, especially if you're creating one that's based on you. Um, At the end of the day, kind of the way we think about it at Hour One is like, well, in real life, in-person connections are absolutely the best thing and should be emulated as much as possible, but they're just not always possible and they're not always scalable and they're not always appropriate uh and so that's kind of like where we see the opportunity that our technology can help solve for um but actually as creators who have created these ai clones how do you delegate um to your ai clone ian yeah so for me specifically it's about creating content that's in my niche um, about the future report but there's so many other applications i could use it for um Anything that has the application around scale, for me, is really important and super helpful. I can have lots of experiences where I'm not really looking to have a two-way dialogue or I'm looking to present something where my avatar can do that for me in a way that would actually take more effort for me personally to develop it at such a polished level. We're talking about like getting makeup on and getting in front of lights and cameras and all that kind of stuff. It takes hours out of any session. I can just do it very, very quickly with the tools I have accessible to me. And then I can distribute it on platforms in ways I couldn't otherwise. So for me, that's the, the current application. But I do think that there are myriad ways that we can have interactions that don't require intense back and forth or really in-depth conversations that also don't feel disposable that avatars will start to play a role in going forward. Um, so I think right now, the way we even think about social media, and Sinead, you said earlier, like we are our avatars online just using text format. There's a natural evolution between the two of those. We're using text, photos, and video. Those are actually, by a dictionary definition, an avatar of sorts. They are a representation of you at a different point in time just stored in the, in, uh, the digital ether that people can access. Um, now you're actually talking about something that's purposely done for that uh, type of context. And I think there's some interesting applications that haven't hit societal scale yet that many people will be like, oh, I'd never interact with an avatar like that. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Sinead, can you share your thought about, um, you know, dividing and conquering in, in the work scenario? Yeah, I'd say um, professional services going forward or anything that actually, re- or any role that requires at some point interacting with uh, a customer, uh, I think you would have an avatar that would help kind of filter those conversations first. So say you are a lawyer uh, and somebody was looking to get legal advice from you, uh, maybe instead of, you know, Picking up the phone and having that interaction, your, your, the potential client would have that interaction with your avatar to see if you would even be a great fit or they could cover that type of law, uh, so to speak. So that's an area, uh, of course, um, more executive assistance, uh, customer service. We can expect companies, how they have social media profiles to eventually have uh, AI-powered avatars uh, that you can interact with. Uh, and, it, and it speaks to, you know, we tweet something at a company and we expect them to respond. Uh, And so this is in many ways a solution, a much more scalable solution to that. Uh, But I think eventually many of us by the end of this decade and going into the next, we'll have an an AI avatar in some form uh, that's powered by AI that in some way converses with the 
external world uh, as an extension of us. Awesome. And Taryn, so you're having your second generation avatar uh, being uh, created as we speak. Uh, what are the use cases that you envisage for your avatar? Um, I mean, like I said, I, I initially envisioned it as a, as a means to make the kind of content that I really wanted to make. Um, there's another reality here, there, though, that is that we're still kind of in this uncanny valley transitionary period where you can obviously tell you're watching an avatar and it is a little jolting. When you are making a series about the future, I think that feels um, that feels authentic and it's readily accepted. And there's probably some other use cases where that's the case. But obviously, if I'm trying to like speak authentically to my audience about something, it will be rejected <laughs> in wholesale, at least for now, you know, until, until the, the avatars just improve um, in, in terms of their realistic quality. So I think, you know, the answer to that question is going to evolve. Um, I think that the, the, the amount of, of the types of content that we'll see being produced as the avatars become more and more realistic will change. Um, but... But for now, I mean, I'm thinking very much in terms of Ian. Like, how can I use this as a, as a way to explore new types of content that, um, that, are, that take place in the future and where I can create a character out of this avatar? Yeah, and not have to actually so be, able, be able to create shows and content without actually having to do all of it, right? It's like Correct. this idea of, like, taking an, an idea and turning it into, you know, some kind of audiovisual content in very little time is something that is just very novel, just like thinking about generative AI in the broader sense of things and the potential uh, with the technology. And I guess like adding tools like ChatGPT and GPT-4, if we was going to say current here, um, it will just make uh, just getting ideas off the page just faster and faster. Um, did want to move on a little bit to um, Sinead, ask you a little bit about what you think the impact on the workforce will be um, of AI avatars kind of entering the space? Yeah, I think, I mean, AI more broadly is going to obviously have some disruption, mostly augmentation by, by artificial intelligence, so we'll share a lot of tasks, uh, but there will be a, a more automated impact. Uh, so in the world of entertainment, uh, fashion modeling is one that I had mentioned. Uh, certain areas of, of acting will start to see AI-powered people maybe take those roles. Um, and in some ways, it might be uh, a Leonardo DiCaprio clone. So he's still kind of licensing out his image. He can now be in six movies at once. Um, and so he didn't necessarily lose a job. He's just actually gained and became a lot more productive. Uh, but there will be some roles where it might make a lot more sense instead of casting for that role and, and dealing with a human uh, to create a human, an AI-powered human for that role. Um, and for the news, I think, will be one that we're already starting to see uh, and eventually, especially for stories that don't necessarily require something very deeply personal. Uh, we'll see some of those jobs shared with AI um, and maybe eventually kind of passed to AI. Uh, and then things that are, are digital um, and require some form of human communication. So if it's a first round interview for HR, uh, that will probably be a, a task that will be done by AI. And it largely already is, right? AI uh, reads most of the resumes. And if you've applied for a job in the last three or four years, AI is largely responsible for 
if you got seen um, by that company. Uh, and eventually that, that kind of initial scouting process will be entirely passed to, to artificial intelligence. It's hard to say in total how many jobs will be augmented versus entirely automated, um, but we can expect both. Yeah, it's really interesting, the interplay between like, humans and AI in the workforce. Uh, what we try to think about is like, well, how do you make human beings, because like, thinking about who the beneficiaries are of the AI that's entering the workforce. Um, and something that we try to think about at Hour One is, well, how do we make, at least when you're cloning your AI twin, how can you, as the human being behind it, be the beneficiary of how that AI twin, um, you know, the work that it does in the world. So just as an example, you know, um, if you guys are familiar with Berlitz, which is a language learning school, which is 150 years old, uh, they've actually created um, so eight virtual instructors uh, but they're all, and so basically they can now teach all of these languages and create online courses, uh, which didn't exist before because they're making 20 to 30,000 videos, even just in the first round, like no human being is going to sit for that. Uh, so it's an opportunity that didn't exist before that you can have all of this instructor led content. But I think the key from an ethical standpoint for us is that all of those teachers are based on real people and those people are comp compensated in micropayments for the amount of video that they end up appearing in. So just kind of thinking about like how we can make human beings and employees and the workforce, you know, members of the workforce, the actual beneficiaries of the AI that we're kind of developing in general. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff around the IP of that. And you know, you brought up the idea of like uh, movie stars appearing in roles. We've had, I mean, Hollywood's been doing deep fakes for decades. And most recently, there was a little bit of fake news around Bruce Willis licensing his likeness. It, there was some truthiness to that. Um, he appeared in a Russian TV commercial for a uh, phone company. And he essentially was paid for his likeness to be applied to another actor. It wasn't an actual uh, avatar. Um, and it wasn't actually licensing his li likeness. They asked if they could make a deep fake of him and paid him in some way, shape, or form. The IP of the entertainment industry is incredibly complicated, but I think that there's enormous opportunity for people in the public eye to be able to license their likeness for these types of things. Now, that also creates additional complexity for those who aren't already well-known, who aren't the Leonardo DiCaprio's, who aren't the Bruce Willis's of the world to say, okay, well, now all of these people alive and dead because, you know, estates can get involved in this, and now you have James Dean licensing his likeness out. We have all of prior Hollywood available to us based on a licensing uh, procedure. So there's a marketplace that develops around this as well. Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting thing for us to navigate because there is a benefit to those people who are being created, but there's also the market dynamics that then come into play here as well. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's going to be a wild ride. And just as you've mentioned IP, as somebody who spent many years in the fashion industry, um, models don't own their own images. So any photo that's taken of them, they don't own that. Uh, so what does that mean in a future where uh, your entire kind of more human identity is in 360 uh, in avatar form, maybe not owned by you? Uh, so again, there are the ethical questions that should always accompany the evolution of these technologies. Do you think that this is very optimistic to think this is an opportunity for models to claim uh, sort of some ownership then over their image? Because if they own their AI avatar and their AI avatar appears in more content, do they have more ownership of that image? 
Absolutely. Well, it does create um, an opening for a negotiation uh, that previously hasn't uh, existed. And I think even just the evolution of technology in the industry more broadly is, is kind of causing a bit more of, of a reckoning, uh, the role of agency and so forth in a, role, in a world where we're a bit more digitized. Uh, but I do think that there is a potential optimistic twist to it. I also think that there's an importance in terms of claiming your own space in that as well. Uh, we're seeing it especially in the voice acting industry where a lot of voice actors are being pressured and asked to sign over rights for overdubs later. So if you do voice acting, there's usually um, another opportunity to do selects or uh, re-records afterwards when they want to make some changes. And the voice tech has gotten so good that they could easily clone your voice based on the session that you've just done. So a lot of contracts uh, and a lot of properties are saying, well, sign over your rights. We'll give you an extra couple hundred bucks. And that gets really complicated really fast because it, goes, it can go beyond that project. Sometimes it's in perpetuity. And that's a new thing that a lot of people have to navigate. So it's going to go way beyond voice. It's going to be on likeness. Are you signing your actual likeness away? Physical. For five sequels. Exactly. Uh, you're now in Fast 40 and you're actually not here anymore. Okay. Um, who's benefiting from that? So there's going to be a lot of interesting things happening here in terms of how you want to show up. And one of the motivations for me that was like very much tertiary, though, was owning that place so that when other people, that opportunity becomes something, I do have a strong place in negotiation to say, well, I own this, this is mine. And if you want to, to work with this, you have to come to me versus, well, I'm relying on you to guide me there. And when that becomes the negotiation, you have far less power. Yeah, so sort of thinking about traceability, like to claim ownership, like, to, yeah, so you authorized um, your image or your AI clone to be used in these scenarios, but, you know, something that we think about a lot as a technology company is, well, where is our content showing up? And currently, we watermark our content, so we label it as um, AI generated to respect the user's right to know. Um, but also, we're kind of investigating deeper ways to be able to trace that content just to know where it went. And I kind of feel like from an IP perspective, that will be critical to actually knowing um, where that showed up and being able to claim, um, claim that. I could not agree more. I mean, as, you, as this goes to scale, I mean, I'm mostly working with one outlet right now. But the goal for me as this evolves is to be able to be present in all sorts of different places and also license it to a point where maybe I don't even know the outlet that is licensing it, but they might hit a certain uh, rubric for what I would allow to happen. And that way I can always just keep a look at a dashboard or some sort of readout, say, okay, this is appearing here. This is what's happening with it. Yeah, this is cool. This is, this is keeping pace with the brands that I have, the image that I want to create. Or if I want to be wide open, I have that ability as well. But there, the sense of control is going to be really important. And I think that's a, a feeling of caution for most people getting into this space because the narrative in the media is all about this deep fake of this person was put in very compromising situations. And when talking to this, uh, this space for the first time, that's usually the biggest apprehension most people have. And again, it comes to ownership. It comes to the ability to claim your space here. And I think that the provenance is going to be even more critical going forward for all types of content because it's so hard to see what's real and what's fake. I mean, I can't tell how many times I've looked at things on my LinkedIn feed lately and say, well, let me think about that. Where did that come from? Is that real or not before I get all excited about it? And it can go the other way as well. Totally. I actually want to pass this question to Taryn. But before doing so, if anyone has any questions, we have a mic here. Uh, so please um, queue up an orderly line at the mic. <laughs> just kidding. So, um, so Taryn, just on that, you mentioned earlier about like authenticity 
uh, and you know your likeness, your AI avatar, kind of needing to become much more like you and lifelike in order for it to kind of play into many more of the use cases that you foresee. When that happens, do you see you and your AI avatar as kind of being interchangeable? Yeah, I do. And I think that we'll see much more massive adoption, not just from media use cases. I mean, something that immediately comes to mind is um, just for like private, private use amongst families and friends for loved ones before they pass to, you know, to um, preserve their legacy. Uh, You know, like I would absolutely love to have my grandmother available who, you know, passed away 10 years ago. And if, if I had somehow been able to get like her speaking for three hours about her background and her advice on a variety of different things and then put that into an avatar and then be able to speak to it when I'm going through a tough time, I would. And I I think that will actually become a very normal thing. Um, Maybe that is eerie for a lot of people to contemplate, but I had a friend who passed away of cancer um, last year and chose to do exactly that. Uh, You know, wanted to preserve her likeness and her story so that her children... Um, would have something to visit as they grew older and to get to know her by. And so the, the closer that these avatars come to actually looking and feeling like us, I think the more likely it is that all of us will find use cases like that um, that, we, that we care about and identify with. What you're speaking to is actually the origin of Replica, the AI avatar uh, platform. Uh, the woman who founded it had uh, a friend, one of her good friends had just passed and she found solace in going through the text messages that they had shared prior to his passing. And she said, you know what, They're going through these conversations makes me feel like I'm having them again. There's something comforting and emotionally supportive by being able to do this. What if I could actually provide this type of engagement emotionally for other people? And that's where the platform was born. And it does provide that type of counseling to a lot of people. And a lot of people who haven't worked with the platform have a hard time thinking, I might be able to get emotional support from a bunch of lines of code, but you'd be shocked at how that can actually help and how lifelike it can feel when you're there. And that creates a boundary that's interesting to navigate, but it is already happening. We are already building bonds with these digital creations. And I'll just add one other thing. I mean, there's a reason why people like Tony Robbins, whether he's your cup of tea or not, get paid you know, as much money as they get paid to, to, to coach executives and certain therapists like Esther Perel, who are beloved by many people, I mean, the second that their avatars can actually like fully resemble them and their energy and become a, a, a sort of breathing replica of them, there's an argument that we can scale help and therapy um, for a lot more people at a much cheaper price point or for free, you know, that need that. Need that. And that's an exciting use case, I think. So interesting. And also, it just makes me think that there's almost like a new definition of authenticity. It's kind of in this white space that doesn't exist yet, like the afterlife, basically. And so it's authenticity in this new space where this person clearly isn't alive anymore. So there's kind of that natural kind of implication that this is an AI avatar, yet it is truly authentic. So that was really interesting. Uh, Yes, please ask Hi, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to everyone. I did want to click on double click sort of on the topic of disclosure. So I work for a brand that launched a trio of virtual influencers last year. 
and as we think about ways to continue to animate them in the years ahead. You know, you touched on this for your own platform, but what sort of is the responsibility of the brand, the talent, the creator in disclosure to the audience? And what are the different ways you, that you think that that can be addressed now in 2023? Yeah, it's something that we think about a lot as an active um, and ever-evolving kind of discussion. Uh, so, as I mentioned, kind of from the beginning, we've put a like a watermark, which is unbranded watermark, on our videos, um, inspired by a bill of rights that was submitted in 2019 when our company was founded uh, in California. That basically said uh, to respect the user's right to know that the that the content is computer generated, it should be disclosed within the frame. So we do that. Um, we realize at the same time that bad actors or people that just don't want it there can crop it off. So it's not really a sustainable, indelible thing. Um, but the, uh, the intention is there. Um, so what we say as a kind of a best practice and it, um, to clients, and we actually do embed this watermark um, for what it's worth into all of our videos, so you actually have to actively try to remove it. What we say is, as a best practice, you should disclose within the frame somehow, either visually... Uh, or by like my AI avatar just saying like I'm AI Nat, just basically just to signal what what people are looking at, and also serving use cases where it's not uh, where it's not you know it's, there's no detriment to the experience if people realize that it's an AI avatar. It's like the idea is you're creating value that couldn't have existed before. So we try to work with companies that want to create that value that couldn't exist. And we share these sort of best practices. And we, when we're constantly looking at ways to kind of trace content in a deeper, more kind of um, indelible way. And I would just add to that, I think I would always, always, always disclose uh, that this is an avatar or an AI-generated human. Um, I don't think there's any win in kind of people feeling tricked at any point. Um, and if we want to look at kind of a use case, um, and this isn't even kind of a personified avatar, but and in 2016, Google came to market uh, with a powerful AI system that sounded incredibly human called Duplex. Um, and we actually never got to use it. And the reason why is when they demoed the avatar or the, the AI voice calling a restaurant and making a reservation, it sounded so incredibly human-like. Uh, the person on the other end had no idea, booked the reservation for the party, um, and society and people in the tech com community kind of freaked out. Um, and it was seen as, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't trick people. Uh, and it kind of became an AI industry informal standard to always make sure the person on the other end knows that they're talking to an AI. Um, and so I think if you're a company with uh, a reputation on the line, never take the path of secrecy. Uh, and especially in a world where we share when things don't go well, uh, it probably wouldn't be great economically to be on the other end of that kind of a catastrophe. To your point about duplex, I was in the audience when they demoed that for the first time at Google I.O. And in my entire life, I can't remember a bigger holy shit moment than that. And there was a mix of excitement and absolute terror in the audience because you have the group of devs who are like, let's push technology to the edge for the better of humankind. And other people are like, we get what this might do. And everyone was kind of circling between those two different states for the rest of the freaking week. Um, it is probably good that that wasn't released to the public at that point in time, because we're already having that crisis of releasing ChatGPT. Think about this a couple years ago. 
Um, but going back to, to Providence and disclosure, I think the other thing too is as a brand, there are also creative ways you can incorporate that disclosure in a way that's like bringing the audience into like, hey, this is artificial in a way that's still natural to the brand and to what the audience wants. And if you haven't played in this space, I think that as we're kind of holding the public's hand here, people are aware of this topic, but if you can kind of help guide them through the process since you're investing in this and, and building that into the storyline or the experience, I think that also helps onboard more people. That's right. Hi. Should I let Chance Hi. Thank you. Um, obviously, the, the avatars that you've created have a, an incredible physical and verbal likeness. Um, I guess my question is, how far away are we, do you think, of having a behavioral likeness to, and also being able to have avatars that hold the values that you might have? What was the last few words? I'm sorry. Uh, the, like holding your values, basically, as a person, and being able to respond to things behaviorally how you might. I can kind of jump in on that. Uh, where we are with technology, even the, the most advanced technology in the world, uh, it is still just uh, an information summarizer. So AI today, it doesn't matter if it's powered by Google or OpenAI, it doesn't actually hold anything. It doesn't hold values. It doesn't hold perspective. Um, it's just a snapshot of the internet and summarizing all of that information. Uh, so for, for humans going forward, uh, if you had a really powerful system uh, that was trained on everything you've ever, ever written, every text, every social media post, it would sound probably almost exactly like you, uh, and it would probably reflect uh, your same perspectives if they've kind of been mentioned in the data, so to speak, uh, but it doesn't actually know what it's saying. It has no capability of understanding or reasoning, uh, so I would never hold AI to a standard of having values, uh, and I think it's important that we don't, uh, and we remember that it's the human behind these AI systems uh, that are really important, uh, and that's kind of like the key thing. But in terms of behavior, um, you could have an AI system almost now that seems a lot like you, at least in a computer, not like a humanoid form. Um, but again, it's just a, a replica of what's been in the data. It doesn't actually know anything or have any form of kind of conscience or, or perspective in that way. Yeah, to your point, uh, Yan LeCun, who leads AI for Facebook, got a lot of flack recently for saying ChatGPT wasn't all that innovative. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're just an old curmudgeon. You just don't realize what this is and you, don't, you want to get credit for this. Um, but he's actually right. Um, it's the idea of ChatGPT is an interface on a technology that has existed for a long, long, long time. The difference is scale. So we just did the same thing we've been doing at a much larger level. And we were just surprised at how effective that scale was. Um, even Sam Altman and the OpenAI crew were like, wow, this thing has emergent abilities as a result of scale that we did not predict. Um, but to Sinead's point, it's just really good at saying, what should the next word be? It's your emails autocomplete on the most ultimate steroids in the entire universe. That's what we're working with right now. Um, to get to an idea where we have values and being able to understand how you would respond, there's a whole field of AI cognitive architecture that a lot of people are working on. And it's, I would say, about 70% academic right now, but there are a lot of uh, machine learning and DevOps people and AI people who are really leaning into this because that's going to be the next wave of this type of technology. Eventually, we're going to reach the point where we've already mined as much data as we possibly can to create these large language models, and just putting progressively more data inside of it isn't going to make that much of a difference. So being able to have that type of cognitive architecture where you can model the brain more effectively is going to be something that is absolutely necessary. Hi. 
You guys spoke a bit about the ethical implications, and I thought this interview was super interesting because at the start she said it was terrifying. And you mentioned as well, you know, being up and down between excitement and fear for like a whole week. And so I'm wondering how you guys help people deal with that emotional response, particularly the fear one, when these, these technologies, when you show them what it can do, people often jump to that. So what's your best, like, Esther Perel interpretation? How do you get them through that? <laughs> I, so, I actually, my day job, I, I work in the world of brain-computer interfaces. So if you want to talk about things that, that make people feel nervous. Um, that would be the space that I exist in <laughs> every day. And, you know, I think s some of this is, is just, it's a matter of socialization. Um, the, the, the point at which, you know, your mom or your sister or your best friend has made an avatar and is using it and you're aware of how they're using it is going to dictate your level of comfort with it, much like the world of brain-computer interfaces, the second that, um, you know, you hear about this scary technology, but the second that your son has an accident and is paralyzed, and uh, this becomes their only option for restoring function, and so you end up learning about these incredible use cases that you hadn't thought of before, um, that starts to change, I suppose, opinions one by one. Um, but to the same token, there's going to be people that use these things for nefarious uh, in nefarious ways, and that will also impact public opinion. Um, the, the difference, I think, and this has been the case with every technology that's ever existed, people are terrified of it until it starts being socialized in their local communities, and that's how they build an, uh, like a, an informed opinion around it. But we're just on an, at a very quick acceleration curve right now where we're forced to kind of adapt and reconcile with these technologies much faster than we used to. And I mean, I'm, I already feel like the old lady sometimes where I'm just like, what is, what is happening? What is going on? And I'm, you know, I'm in this stuff every single day. So I, I can imagine that this is a, this is scary for a lot of people. To your point about fear too. I mean, when the train was being constructed, people were afraid that it was going to rip apart the fabric of society and bring up, uh, upon us far flung ideas from far flung places. That's an actual quote um, from one of the popular newspapers of the day. So this happens, this is a cycle that's not new. Um, but coming to that oh, that, oh shit, fear factor, um, Taryn and I talked about being gonzo uh, futurists, and one of the reasons for that is we still go through those emotional reactions, we just get to do it earlier than everybody else. And we fully processed it by the time it becomes a little bit more, more uh, publicly accepted. But that response is natural. Fear is 90% of what's unknown. And as soon as you start to understand the contours of it and spend time with it, it becomes known, you get, ah, okay, I get what the real challenge is here. And if more people start doing that, then I think collectively we'll understand it. But as a society as a whole, we kind of have to help people through that. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, the, the best thing we can do about the future is prepare for it. And you can't prepare for something that you don't know what's coming. So I'd encourage you as, as best you can to lean into it, to get informed, because then we can actually shape and steer the future in the way we want it to go. I know for a lot of people, it might feel like six or seven people are kind of coding our future, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. But it becomes really challenging to steer something in a direction you feel comfortable with um, if you don't kind of insert yourself in the conversation. Uh, we do our best, obviously, to, to try to translate this type of content to, to the masses. Uh, but I think we all do have a collective responsibility to lean into the futures that we're going to be a part of. I think there's also just having a meta-awareness about our, our brains and neuroplasticity. I mean, if you're over the age of 25 or 30, chances are you are 
you know, most of your beliefs, uh, foundational beliefs are pretty hardwired. Um, children don't have any sense of uh, ownership over what they think reality should look like. So when they're engaging with these tools, you know, they're not thinking, oh, this is, this is how society is supposed to look, so I'm going to reject this technology. And so we just also have to keep that in mind, that there's going to be a really different reaction from, from children than from adults with all of these things as we move through it. Awesome. Hey there. Um, so one of the emerging themes that kind of has I've been hearing in this session and throughout is that these technologies are advancing pretty quickly. Um, in another session that I was in just this afternoon, someone mentioned that the regulations with these technologies aren't keeping pace. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to the policy landscape here and what you think policymakers should know about this technology in particular um, to make sure that we don't hinder innovation but also protect people. Uh, what policy? Yeah, I was we're like, going to get like we're going to get a hot take answer from whoever wants to participate just to make sure that we. Yeah. A hot take answer would be, or very short answer, what policy? Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, our in, for, fortunately, our institutions are designed to move slow, and that's usually a really good thing. Uh, but when now the undercurrent of society is technology, something that is inherently uh, quick and, and dynamic and adaptive, uh, there seems to be a bit of a, mis, a mismatch. Uh, so right now, in terms of, of policy, uh, it's a little bit of the Wild West. Uh, I think that only now are lawmakers starting to understand the problem of, ge of deep fakes from a geopolitical standpoint, and therefore it's coming up in a few more kind of debate or, or political rooms. Uh, but outside of that, it is kind of industry best practices uh, and societal level of comfort. And that's why I do think it's important uh, for people to be as vocal as possible uh, if, if they see kind of dangers or challenges with technology, because uh, right now it's, it's a little bit of the Wild West from a regulatory standpoint. Okay, that's maybe related to this. Um, yesterday I went to a session with uh, TFM Johnny, who has like many uh, characters, um, virtual uh, characters uh, in the gaming uh, part. Um, when it comes to like realistic avatars, um, I'm curious, I mean, somebody could create an avatar which almost looks like me, or I could create an avatar which looks like one of you. Um, what will be the situation, or what's the legal situation with this? I mean, are there rights in your own face or stuff like that? What's your view on that? I think at this point, it, the existing legal system is already talking about, like, if you were putting somebody in a compromising position, that is essentially slander or uh, basing that that person, then existing laws actually cover a lot of that already. Um, the idea of actual ownership of this content, though, is a completely different situation. So it's kind of like if I used your likeness in a TV commercial, I would have to compensate you for that, and I could be legally liable for not doing that. The same thing would hold true with an avatar that was designed in order to do that, because intent is a big part of it, and intent is actually firmly established in law already. Thankfully, that's not dependent upon code. Um, but that's that already is, is happening. We were talking about the Megaface app ads that appeared on Facebook recently. There were 127 ad units that showed up in Facebook ad library um, of a uh, deep fake app that was implying the face of Emma Watson or Scarlett Johansson doing something sexually subjective. That showed up on Facebook's ads, and it was something that wasn't shut down until recently. So it's happening. Um, thankfully, legal recourse is possible in those types of situations, but there's going to be some really rocky terrain as we navigate the holistic territory of it. 
how do we manage the earning model for avatars? So, for example, if my avatar with my expertise that is valued when I'm speaking uh, as a, a person is then uh, multiplied across multiple channels with my avatar, um, I can see, for instance, academic institutions would love to get as much out of people for as little money as possible. How do we manage that value for the avatars? Well, how it works today in our business is that basically you, as the person behind the AI avatar, basically gets compensated every time that avatar um, gets used. Um, so at an agreed upon uh, price. So if you're partnering with an institution and you are an academic at that institution and the partnership is with the institution, but with your likeness, all of that is kind of featured in, um, in included in the contract as to basically when your likeness is used to deliver this content um, that get, yeah, so, so to be fair, it's like micro payments, right? This is revenue and exposure that never existed. Um, it's potentially creating value that never existed. What the right price for these things are is up for debate. Um, but I think the important thing is, is that you as that person is always tied to, to basically your likeness um, being used and kind of value extracted from it. And I think what we, I mean, there's two things I want to say about that. One is we have to be really careful that there isn't a massive differential between what a person would be paid to actually show up physically and use their their digital likeness. Because that, that, that just, obviously then all these companies will just be incentivized to use these digital avatars. No one's being paid fairly. So that's an important part of this discussion. The second part is I do think everyone will have um, you know, some equivalent of like a speaker bureau, um, whether it's our one or a different company that's, that's negotiating you know, these, these appearances on their behalf and, and the speaker fees or the appearance fees are going to change depending on the brand's requirements or needs, um, much like we already do now. Yeah, you can see the talent agencies and a whole new ecosystem of new companies playing in this space um, and trying to operationalize it um, and commercialize it. And that's all we actually have time for today. Thank you, everybody. And this was really fun. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much.